Welcome to episode 278 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Sunday, 1st of August, 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and welcome to today's episode of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, brought to you in association with Jensen USA. Today's show is a chat with CycleFit's co-founder, Phil Cavell. We talk at length about his new and rather excellent book, The Mid-Life Cyclist. What's it all about? Grow old, get fast, don't die, says a snappy line on the back cover. Now, I'm definitely midlife. The book defines that as plus 40, by the way, but I'm by no means an athlete. So the book's not aimed directly at me, but I still discovered loads, including why peddling circles that's often known by the French word souplesse, of course, is cycling's version of the flat earth theory. Here's our chat. I have got uh, two pages of questions to ask you. Normally, I don't, I, I, I kind of do free-flowing stuff. I just do stuff off the top of my head. And, uh, but your book was fascinating. And I have made copious notes. There, there, I, I, I will admit I did get two books in, in the post very kindly. And, and one I have absolutely slaughtered with uh, blue ink, uh, which is terrible of me to, to mark a book. But it was fascinating. And, and we will get onto your book in, in, a, in a second because this is what we want to talk about stuff today. But before we do any of that, I just want to ask you a, a bit about you and where you've, you've come from. So before we get to your, your absolute expertise, let's go backwards. And uh, if it's okay with you, when when we go through the chronology, before we even getting into your book, I would quite like to go into your crash, your spinal injury, and then from from what it said in the book, or what you wrote in the book was that was a big impetus for for writing the book. So that's that's absolutely um, something I think we ought to talk about with your permission. But yes. first of all, I I or well, thank you for my permission. <laughs> I would like to ask you about your second name. So are you by any chance related to Edith Cavell, who obviously was a famous nurse in the First World War? Yes, allegedly, according to my father. So potentially great, great something? My great, great grandfather's cousin, allegedly. I've never done the family tree, Carlton, um, so I'm going to put that qualifier in there. But my father was an honest, decent person. Uh, I don't think he would have misled us. Um, mm. Apparently, yeah, there's not that many who 
Vels in the country, and we are all related, apparently. Yes, it's an unusual uh, name, so that's why I've, 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 yes. I've. It's not Smith. It's like, well, maybe you are related yes. to Edith. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's something I've never asked you, and I have known you, Phil, for probably the best part of thirty years. And even before, so you are known for CycleFit, okay? People will, will, will absolutely know Phil Cavell um, and, your, and your partner, uh, Julian uh, Jules, uh, for CycleFit. But I knew you before that. So I knew you when, this is very zeitgeisty now, to have bike parking. Uh, that's, you know, a recognized thing. It's a good thing to have bike parking for people to, to protect their bikes. But that's what you did. So is that how you got into the industry, into this sphere, by doing that Covent Garden bike park? Yes. At the age of, I was 30 and Jules was 29. Uh, I was in the music industry before that. And, I'm, and I'd always made an intention to get out in the music industry by the time I was 30. Uh, I was already racing bikes at that time. Jules and I were racing together. We raced all the time together. And at 28, 29, I got out of the music industry and we started Bike Park, um, which was very much our baby, really. Um, and so we rented this little building around the back of where we are now in Stukeley Street. Um, and we rented it for a princely sum of £6,000 per annum. Um, and we converted it with our extremely good friend, Guy Andrews, who then went on to found uh, the Rouleur magazine, Empire. At the time, Guy was between jobs. We were all between jobs. Jules was, I was, Guy was. So the three of us, me, Jules and Guy, converted the space um, that we'd rented in about three months, all by hand. Uh, and Guy Andrews was site foreman. He was Captain Mannering. Uh, hmm. Jules was... Uh, Oh, who Jules would be? I think Jules would be. Who's the one, the Scottish one that was always? We doomed Captain. So that was Jules, and I was, I was probably in <laughs> Corporal Jones and Pike. Um, and we just converted it ourselves. And then we, it was just all, it was all one of those things that was poorly thought through, all in emotion and good intention. And then we opened seven o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at mm. night, seven days a week. Would it be fair to say it, it was ahead of its time and it failed? Well, you could put that the other way around. It failed. Um, <laughs> it, it, it probably, I'm not sure it was ahead of its time. Um, it was, I remember because at the time John Smith had just died, the, the Labour leader. Uh, it was, it was, it was it, you're right, your word is right, zeitgeisty. You know, John Smith died, I think, a couple of days before we opened uh, Labour leader. It was a very strange time, just coming out of recession. Early 90s was a mm. bizarre time. Um, we, I mean, I think, I think it's true to say that cycling, we hadn't caught the right wave. We'd caught a little wave, you know, lots of couriers, uh, you know, lots of people cycling around London, but it was all based on how inexpensive something was rather than how healthy it was. And so we probably caught the wrong wave. Had we done it to 10 years later when we did cycle fit, we probably would have caught the right wave. Um, mm. I think that's true to say. Having said that, we didn't, our, our, both Jules and I had very cheap, cheap kind of lifestyles. All we wanted to do was race our bikes and, you know, it was all very much London cycling. Based. So we didn't need much money. So we kept it going for nine, ten years. Um, and, it, you know, we kind of got by on repairing bikes, renting bikes, parking bikes. The parking bikes didn't make any money at all. 
Um, but it, you know, it was it was great actually. It was, it was brilliant. So we will we will organically come on to cycle fit just when we when we when we go through your books. We don't need to go from bike park to cycle fit uh, right now. Although absolutely, I I, I I totally want to. But I'd like to go straight into your book, Phil. And I am going to be quoting stuff back to you. I, I'm going to be going from like page to page to page, even going to like, th- at one point, I'm going to three page references at once to pick stuff out that you have repeated. And uh, I thought that's interesting. I'm going to ask Phil about that. So this is called The Midlife uh, Cyclist, The Roadmap for the Plus 40 rider. And before we go into, into the gubbins of it, and, and I should say the subhead is who wants to, tra- the plus 40 rider who wants to train hard, ride fast and stay healthy. But you've got some absolutely stellar um, blurbs on here. So on the front, uh, Phil Liggett says, an amazing accomplishment. And I have descended behind Phil. He is an uh, unbelievably good uh, uh, downhiller, which you do talk about uh, going downhill in your book quite a lot. And I always thought about Phil when you were talking about that. And then you've got Fabian Cancellara. Now I'm assuming, and in fact, I'm not assuming because in the book it says so. He he was a Fabian was a, a client, so you helped him. Yes. So we joined. We were sort of um, in-house bike fitters to Trek from 2012 onwards. So we came there probably the same time that we came to the team the same time as Fabian actually, and Andy Schleck. Um, and it was still called Radio Shack then, and the team was very much in transition later to become um, Factory Racing and then Trek Sega Freddo. So we sort of see it, we saw it through those transition periods. But we all came to the team together in uh, 2012. Yeah. And so we were all, all fresh in the team. Um, and so we we drove out to the first holding camp, training camp in Calpe, where we were introduced to the team and became their sort of in-house bike fitters for the next like, four years. Uh, and Fabian was one of those. So we do. We, there are a few pro cyclists in the book, uh, but mainly it's not really about pro cycling, is it? It's mainly about um, hardcore amateur uh, cyclists, but you know who push themselves. Perhaps, and, and you do talk about this. Perhaps uh, they push themselves a little bit too hard. And then another quote on the book, which then jumped out at me, uh, and I, I think I did remember that this guy was a cyclist, but I had to kind of Google it just to make sure. And that's Gary Kemp of Spando Ballet who says, I'm determined to grow old gracefully in Lycra, and Phil Cavell has been helping me to do it successfully for years. So you've got a pretty interesting clientele list there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Gary, I mean, Gary and I would have met in our music industry days because a very, very close friend of mine was his agent, and I, we did meet. But it's like one of those separation of lives. We just, you know, we only really met and became friends and professionally acquainted, if you like, when I stepped out of the music industry and went into the bike industry. And um, so, yeah, I, he's, Gary's been a client for many years, as, as has his as his wife. Um, yeah, so we've helped him with bike fitting and issues and things that come up when you're trying to keep a middle-aged cyclist on the road. Uh, so, yeah, and we've done quite a lot of riding together as well. Uh, and, I mean, I think Gary looks phenomenal. I mean, I think, you know, he, he really he really is He's, I think, for me, an exemplar of what cycling can do for somebody if they take it up at the right time and do it properly. I mean, he's in fantastic shape. And there are other other 80s music people who are our clients as well. And it's like it's bewildering how good they look. You know, it really is. They look amazing. 
they you know they they've aged very gracefully they're very slim very fit very strong um i think gary is an exemplar of that so an an exemplar of this also for the whole book is the the quote right at the bottom of the back cover and that i love this quote and that's so this is what the whole book is about basically it's it's grow old period full stop get fast lovely uh, maybe not uh, for me and then uh, don't die so that that's a pretty good thing to to live by there phil do you know what i'm so pleased you pulled that out i, I love that and i wanted it on the front cover and i said you know we were putting the cover in the back so i'd like this right on the cover please right underneath midlife cycles i want in big letters grow old Ride fast or get fast, don't die. That's what I want. And it was like, you can't do that. That's, you can't have die on the cover of the book. Like, of course you can. So I didn't get it on the cover. I put it on the back cover. But, you know, that's, that's, my, that's my thing. That's what I said. That's my very, very small elevator pitch. Yes, I can no, I, I can understand that. And and the get die bit, uh, of course, is is chapter three. As as you say in our emails, you say it's the infamous yes. uh, chapter three. The, the, the don't yes. die chapter which is long yes, and detailed and fascinating. And, and, and you said it's like, um, you know, it's like going down uh, rabbit holes. I don't think it is. I think it's fantastic. I, I, I particularly like the first paragraph, but we'll get into that when we, when we, I'm, I'm going to, I'm slipping, you know, non-chronologically around the, the place at the moment, but we will come kind of like chronologically into the book uh, as we go through. But I would like to say, as, as you gave me, kindly gave me permission, uh, you said I was allowed to talk or get you to reminisce, which which can be painful. Uh, so, 2011. How did you crash? I was riding home um, from work, and I I hit a, a pothole um, that was in front. Of it. I didn't see it, and it was it was where a bicycle lane, uh, and it sort of encapsulates some of my other interests of cycling advocacy. That the, the bike lane went into a bus lane, bus stop. And the bus stop was kind of like tiled. And where the cycle track went into the bus stop, there was a pothole where the tiles moved. I didn't see it. It was so sharp. And I ended up somersaulting over my bike and landing sort of pretty much in the bus shelter. Uh, and it was one of those beautiful British moments where no one said a word, really. I lay there panting like a beach dolphin. And eventually had to kind of say... Excuse me, I'm actually in a lot of problems here, a lot of trouble. Can anybody please call an ambulance? <laughs> At which point someone, someone said, "Yeah, no problem, mate." And they called me an ambulance, and the ambulance came. But you know, that, and uh, and um, yeah, I'd really, I'd hurt myself quite badly. Um, although that wasn't immediately diagnosed uh, at the hospital, but I'd, I'd actually fractured my spine in a particularly bad place, in a particularly acute and extreme way, and. Um, that started a chain of events that culminated in surgery that failed, and spine, spine surgery that failed, and a subsequent infection, and a couple of years of really just trying to get basic health back whilst all that resolved. And then, um, uh, and uh, all the time, all the while, my spine was getting worse and deteriorating, and the, the area that was fractured was kind of, you know, kind of collapsing on itself, if you like. Um, and then subsequently, the, so I couldn't cycle through this period, obviously. So that was cycling, I was still working on and off, um, but I couldn't cycle. And then after I had more surgery in 2017, uh, uh, which was of a much more serious nature because it was 
what's called 360 degree surgery. So they go through the front and um, and put like uh, spaces in your spine, and then they go through the back and join it all up with rods. So it's much bigger surgery, but it was spectacularly successful. It was really, it was you know, even though it was bigger, it kind of worked. So I've now got big scaffolding poles and uh, spaces in my spine. Um, so, you know, mobility is not so great, but, you know, there's a lot of structure there. Am I going into too much detail now, Martin? No, 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 no. I mean, you're going into, there's some of that detail in the book and some of it's not. So that's fascinating. Thank you. And um, uh, we didn't, you didn't talk about the crash. The crash was, uh, you didn't even mention how it happened or, or any of that. So, so I wanted to dig down into to, to more detail on that. So yeah, that's, that's, that sounds awful. And, and the fact that nobody was helping you a great deal was sounds awful too. So it wasn't until page 254 where you mentioned this was the impetus for writing the book and the fact that you were fixing, in your day job, you were fixing uh, broken cyclists. But here you were incredibly broken and, and weren't even riding at this point for, for a good few years. So that must have been awful for your your um, mental health. I think you probably, look in retrospect, I think it was, Carlton, yes, I think it was. I didn't acknowledge it at the time. and. Um, Probably if you ask my wife, she would say that you know that was like a lost seven or eight years from 2011 to 2017, 18 when I had this, this second procedure. Uh, but yeah, I think yes. So I was having to work with cyclists. I'd kind of at that point, to be honest with you, I had written myself off as a cyclist. So you know, my goals were to try and and live without pain, not. To ride a bike again. That was sort of what I, that was. Those were my immediate goals, and the way I earned my living was by helping cyclists. That's just what I did. So you there had to be a separation of church and state in there, really. I, this is not for me anymore. Uh, but it, you know, it's you know, I can derive a lot of satisfaction from doing my job well, um, and and did you know? So there, and I managed to do that. So I managed to sort of function, uh, manage, fun, manage to function professionally in my work even though it wasn't something I could do anymore and it wasn't something I used to discuss with clients either I, you know it didn't feel you know it was something which I was vaguely embarrassed about really but you know I was here I, I felt a little bit fraudulent on occasion that this was you know I was trying to help them them do something that I could no longer do anymore thank you for 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 sharing that that's it must have been both metaphorically and uh, figuratively painful uh, for a number of years uh, both physically and mentally. Um, so thank you for uh, writing the book uh, as the impetus uh, for that also. Now, I'm now going into, I'm going to pick out uh, three quotes and throw them back at you. And I, I know where you're coming from. It was a fantastic uh, way of expressing this when, when I eventually uh, read these quotes out, because I'm a bicycle historian. So I'm absolutely cognizant of exactly what you're you're, you're talking about here, but I'm going, to, I'm going to read the quotes and then you can either defend yourself or, or, or not. Uh, so it's, it's basically about the, the actual thing that we ride each day and, and, and I think a historical thing called path dependence, which maybe we can, we can, we can talk about. So uh, you say that you've spent uh, the better part of your professional life essentially fitting cavemen and cavewomen to a Victorian curiosity and by that mean uh, we mean that our genome is substantially unchanged in 250,000 years but our bicycle dynamics are only unchanged since the 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 Boer war so he basically is saying uh 
uh, were not really fitted for, for these weird Victorian contraptions. So that's page 49. I'll then jump to page 63. So you're basically dissing bicycles here. But anyway, uh, modern bicycles are almost identical in architecture, dimension and biomechanical interface to something that was designed around the same time as the gunfight at the OK Corral. And yeah, you kind of mention it. It is kind of weird that we're riding these carbon fiber bicycles that actually the shapes haven't changed a huge amount. And then page 202, Phil. Despite how much we love them, Bikes are a Victorian daydream preserved in aspic for well over a century because of a speciation event involving the UCI, Union Cycliste Internationale, path dependence, and a huge dose of nostalgia. Phil, why do you hate bikes so much? I think I say in the book, Carlton, um, and it's good that you picked this up, actually. I think I say in the book, the bike is good enough. The design is good enough. The Victorians didn't get it that far wrong. But essentially, what I was saying is the, the bicycle, in a sense, has got stuck in the Victorian era because it's failed to revise itself in the same way. And I think the example I use in the book is, you know, I'm staring down at a QWERTY keyboard that was designed around the same time by Remington. It was designed around the same time to try and avoid the keys jamming. Well, the, the keys won't jam anymore because they're electronic. But we still use a QWERTY keyboard. And it's, that, that's like a path dependence is the term I use. Mm. Yeah, there's a butterfly effect. This, you know, we're now living with the consequences of a failure to revise technology, both in the way that we interface with it, a keyboard, and also the bicycle. So what that means is, um, uh, certainly with the keyboard and also the bicycle, are, are they the best versions of themselves? Um, and the answer to that almost certainly is no in both cases. The next question is, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. You know, because the bicycle is no longer um, the best version of itself. It's a nostalgic device that we all just love. Uh, and, I, and no one loves it more than me, Carlton, and I'm sure you know that. It's, but it's just not the best version of itself. And the failure to revise it is because of a speciation event, which I talk about in the book where, you know, it, it, it's the, the opportunity to revise it was, was kind of was missed. Um, so, it, and, and the only reason I put it in the book is, one, because it's, there's a lot of science and stuff in the book, and, and now and again it's just nice to kind of riff off into a different direction. It's a bit, a bit less challenging. And also to be, to add some context, you know, because for a lot of people the bike doesn't feel great a lot of the time. And that part of the book, is, is in a sense saying, well, that's okay. You know, you're, you're probably right not to feel great some of the time because, the, you know, humans didn't evolve to ride bikes. This is our, what we've tried to do is fit something to you, which we think will take potential into kinetic energy. Is that a great translation device? No. Is it good enough? Yeah, of course it is. Uh, and because of the heritage and associations over the last 130, 140 years, it's now romantically, you know, kind of in our DNA. And it's certainly in mine. And that's fine. But, you know, we shouldn't run away with the idea that bicycles are a modern invention that have been devised and honed over, over centuries and decades. That isn't the case. The basic architecture and cycling dynamics is exactly the same. 
130 years ago as it is now. Very, very little has changed. You make a very good point in the book about the UCI. If if they had have been, if the UCI had have been in existence in the 1880s, then very possibly they would have frozen the bicycle at the penny farthing and said, "This is this is it. We we, we you know we can't have any more um, changes to this. We've got to, everybody's got to race on this thing. We can't have you know even kind of even have um, pneumatic tires." And that would have that would have had a path dependence in its own way. That would have totally changed many parts of 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 world history so kind of good that they didn't exist but with the same corollary you then talk about um when they did ban uh, a product so that was when they banned in the 1920s when they banned the egg recumbent so my question is do you genuinely think that if the uci didn't exist and we'd have been able to design a bicycle in any way it could have could have gone into any direction do you think we would all be on recumbents now no and, and it's not really the point it's a good question it's not really the point because you know it's not for me to say what would have come after it it's only for me to say that nothing came after it you know there was an incident in the 20s when the uci banned the moshe bike uh that frederick uh, that Faraday beat oscar eggs record on in the 1920s um now it's not it's not for me to say what would have come after because what that event did essentially is preserve in aspect what the basic architecture of a bicycle was going to be. Um, I, I do think Moshe, if you look at Moshe, and not much is known about him, but what 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 is probably true to say is that his dream, and I do think he was ahead of his time, was to try and incorporate human power and mechanical power. So, you know, the idea that you pedal a bit and there's a little electric motor that helps you out. His idea was to revolutionise transport away from big, heavy internal combustion engines, something that was a bit more fitting into a minimalist family life. Um, and, and we'll probably circle right round and come back to that dream at some point. You know, we already kind of are, electric scooters and e-bikes, and mm. already coming round there. It's just taken us a lot longer, I would suggest, because there was this event that froze the design of a bicycle. Um, and it's only there, really, Carlton, just as context for people that, you know, you're not riding something which is leading or cutting edge in the sense, you know, of modern computers or, you know, or modern surgical devices where, you know, maybe you're designing with a, bit of, a, a little bit more freedom. You know, the, the, the UCI prescribe what a racing bicycle is. And because competition and racing is so... Um, influential, you can't deviate from it. So, you know, the bikes that we ride, the architecture is prescribed by the racing um, formula, if you like. Um, and that's what constrains it. Now, what, what, what would be if we didn't have those constraints? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I think recumbents have got some legs. I think Graham um, Obrey had some great ideas. I don't know. You, you, you wouldn't necessarily design a device where you spent most of your life in the same position as if you were actually in an office chair. Because isn't the, the like you, there there are ways of actually making the human body on a, a bicycle, a, a, a wheeled vehicle, more efficient? And like the, the the famous one is the the head first, where the person I'm sorry I don't know the the name I'd have to Google it, but is physically lying down forwards. The legs are coming backwards. There's no being, as you say in the book, constrained by, you know, this Victorian architecture. You've got uh, the 
full gamut of movement. You've got the flexibility. You've got everything there. It's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly fast because you're low to the ground. But who the hell would ride it because you're 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 you know you're forwards? So is it not the case that yes, the bicycle has absolute uh, imperfections in the way we we ride it and the way we're constrained by riding it? But if it had been literally had been allowed to just explode into all sorts of different flavors, then it might have been some really weird flavors. And the fact that we actually consolidated and froze it at, well, this is actually 95% perfect. Let's just keep it at that, actually allowed bicycling to blossom. I think it, I think it probably allowed, yes, because bicycle racing is, um, is a game, if you like. You know, it has rules. It's like, like, you know, it's like Monopoly. It has rules and you play by the rules and you have an outcome and a winner. So it's like a bicycle racing is a game and a bicycle is part of that game. Um, and it's good enough. But the, you're talking about the Graham Obrey bike. I mean, in Graham Obrey, I think he was probably nearly 50 when he broke the world record there. I mean, he was doing something like 50 miles an hour on a bicycle, you know, uh, and simply by capturing human mechanics, human biomechanics better, um, and, then, and then making it aerodynamic. So I think partly you're right. You know, we've you know we've got this whole culture around cycling and heritage around cycling, which is very exciting and, and very emotional. But we, what, we've, what we've been denied is decades and decades and decades of people saying, "Well, actually, if we just absolutely dream um, and innovate uh, and with, with no constraints whatsoever, what can we come up with?" That's what we've been denied. Because why companies aren't going to do that? Why would they do that? Um, and so, if, if for example, there was an event a blue ribbon event that was as big as a Tour de France and you could design without constraint. You could just, doesn't matter. Here's the rules. The rules are you have to use the human body. Other than that, everybody have at it. I mean, and, and, and it was big and the prizes were huge and it was, you know, who knows what we would come up with. But it wouldn't be, the winner would not be on a standard racing bicycle. They, they wouldn't even be in the, you know, in the, in the running. The bicycle that won wouldn't look like a modern racing bicycle if that event existed. And I think that's what you have to think about. Now, how much of that would then spill down into a consumer product? Unknown. Unknown. Who knows? And not for me to think about, really. I'm only saying from a biomechanical perspective, there's a lot more performance, efficiency and comfort out there. Um, and, you know, it's not for me to design the product. But to bring us back to bicycles being perfect again, uh, you do then say, but you know, despite all of these 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 known problems, um, it is the physio's friend. So lots of people are actually brought into cycling despite these these problems. So so why is despite these problems, why is bicycling? Why is the bicycle the physio's friend? It's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, because again, it goes back to it being good enough. It, you know, it's. For people who've had hip surgery or knee surgery or even ankle surgery, and of course, you know, we see a lot of these people because of what we do. You know, the bicycle, if you if you get it right, can be a, a primary rehab device, certainly for hip patients. Um, and one of the one of the people I use in the book as an example, Nigel. You know, he was he was, you know he had a very serious hip injury, very very serious crash, uh, and and very very difficult uh, surgery in his hip. A, a nail going straight down his femur to essentially pin him back together. He was pedalling at cycle fit. He limped in 10 days post-surgery, and I set him up in a rehab position. We worked together going forward, um, 
And, uh, you know, he had a good team behind him, not just me. Um, and he was fine. He went back and was full strength, full performance in, I don't know, three months, four months maximum. So in that sense, he used the bicycle as his rehab tool. But we really had to, and this is where I think the physio's friend thing is, I'm slightly tongue-in-cheek with it. It's not as easy as just saying, here's a bicycle, sit on it, and you'll be fine if you've had hip surgery or hip knee surgery. It does actually be, be really considered. Um, yes, it won't be load-bearing, but it doesn't mean it won't load joints adversely if you don't get the knee extension angle right um, and the hip angle right. All those things need to be considered. I mean, it can be the best rehab tool, you know, as good as swimming, but unlike swimming, you are interfacing with a machine and all that needs to be considered. So, Phil, before we go into Chapter 3, the infamous Chapter 3, <laughs> which is, is it the longest? It must be the longest chapter in the book, isn't it? It must be. Um, before we go into Chapter 3, Phil, so you've, you've got a few minutes in which to, to compose yourself and to do maybe those two forms of yoga, which you talk about in the book, and, and, and the square breathing, all that kind of stuff you talk about in the book. This is your chance, because we're going to go to an ad break, and uh, we will go across to David. Take it away, David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart because, of course, there's lots of online retailers out there. But what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who, who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And uh, we are back with Phil Cavell and we are discussing the midlife cyclist. And instead of uh, what, what's on the front cover, I'm going to go to Phil's favorite quote on, on the back, which should have been on the front. Uh, Bloomsbury, please put it on the front for the second edition. And that is grow old, get fast, don't die. Now, that don't die bit uh, is kind of leading into the infamous chapter three in Phil's book. And it's it, it's an unarguably wonderful uh, title for a chapter. It's just, will I die? Question mark. Now, I, when I was reading the book, I was wondering when th these touchy subjects we brought up and lo and behold, here was a, was a whole uh, chapter on it. So despite the fact that Phil is maybe groaning, because I think he's had some feedback on this particular chapter, uh, let's, let's set this up uh, for, for the listeners who are all going to rush out and buy your book, Phil, but let, before they buy the book and they're listening to this, um, Basically, uh, you get this bit out of the way 
absolutely straight away. For the first paragraph, you're talking about the risk of cycling. So basically, your risk of dying on a bike by getting killed by one of these awful motorists that we 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 all hear about uh, uh, constantly is just incredibly slim. It's like you've got to be pretty unlucky, in, in effect, to die on a bike from from that kind of of trauma. So what this chapter is all about is not, you know, bike lanes, not that topic at all, not the not the the the, the dangerous dangerization of cycling topic at all. This is a whole chapter on. Um, how dangerous is it as a as a midlife cyclist? And you can maybe uh, uh, give us the definition of where you you think that starts, Phil. But how dangerous is it? Because there are lots of scare stories, aren't there, in the media of you know studies that the media, the mass media, the mainstream media, the the tabloid press, in effect, have taken kernels of and twisted to basically say you really shouldn't exercise. Uh, you should be a couch potato because exercise is bad for you. So, so take it away on this chapter, Phil. But, but first of all, tell us when you say midlife, uh, how old are you talking about? Yeah. So midlife, it's the title of the book. It's a fair question. Um, bear in mind that none of us would be even reach thirty-five until probably one hundred and forty, one hundred and fifty years ago. And in the ancestral environment, we never made it past thirty, or hardly ever, vanishingly rare. So midlife, if you were going back. A thousand years would be fifteen. So midlife now for this for this book, I think is forty forty five and above. I think, and then forty. And, and, and I mean, I I'm quite wide in that band. I mean, going forward, eighty ninety is still midlife as far as I'm concerned. In terms of things like peak bone density and peak testosterone and um, peak muscle density, all these things peak at thirty. Uh, and there's no, and that's not. That's not an accident, of course, because in the ancestral environment, you know, you, that would give you a chance to breed and then bring up your offspring and then hopefully they would start to breed again. And that would all happen by 30. So there's evolutionary pressure in the ancestral environment to keep you alive to 30, essentially, I'm give or take. Uh, any evolutionary psychologist listening to this on the floor will be jumping up and down saying that's not. But, you know, that's very broadly. But the selective pressure to keep you alive to 30. There's no selective pressure at all in terms of genetically to keep your life to 40, 50. You're genetically redundant. I'm genetically redundant. So essentially, this book is about from that moment where you become genetically relevant. So, you know, 30, you know, modern medicine, we're, we're all still in very good health. But there's a new study out, isn't there, that's just come out. I mean, I, had, I didn't see that study because obviously it's, it's just come out where a third of 40 year olds now and above four, third of plus 40 year olds got sort of yeah, you know serious underlying health conditions diabetes high blood pressure etc etc so that kind of you know that's kind of the age group i'm targeting you know if you're not if you're not doing something about this by mid-40s you know you should be thinking about it um so maybe that's a long answer to a short question so i think 40 45 onwards carlton and the new data research seems to bear that out so it's a, it's a, it is, even though this chapter is quite dark in parts, there's lots of humour in there at all, and you're very self-effacing uh, in the book. There's lot, that's a quite a few uh, nice gags in there in, in, in quite a, a tough chapter, and it is hard reading for men. Yeah, it's probably quite elevating for women because women can it seems can can do what the hell they like 
and and they ain't gonna uh, come a cropper from from you know uh, pitching over uh, from a heart attack. So would you say that's fair that women can pretty much got it off scot free here? Yeah, that appears so, Martin. I mean, you don't you don't want to run away with this and say, okay, every woman, you know, you can do whatever you want, and because you know, you know there are dietary things and there's you know lifestyle issues. But in terms of the self-selecting group we're looking at, people who seek to exercise moderately, women do not seem to be particularly at risk here. Uh, you're quite right, uh, and much as the cardiologists who are doing all this research, Dr. Gemma Parry Williams who features in the book a lot and is quite excellent. Um, and Ahmed Magani, again, Dr. Ahmed Magani, with his research projects. I mean, they're all desperately trying to find, you know, join some dots here so women are implicated and they can't find any. This is the problem. Now, it doesn't mean they're not. It doesn't mean they won't be in the future. But right now, the longitudinal studies can't seem to find any trends uh, for um, veteran women athletes having cardiac problems. Um, so, you know, that's about as far as we can go. So it does, it does seem that women are not implicated in this. Now, I guess that feeds into the next question of why. Uh, and mm. I don't know, Carlton, and I don't think anybody does know. There's hypothecated, you know, um, things like the protective effect of oestrogen, you know, decades and decades of oestrogen, you know, that are being produced around the you know, women's bodies. And that... Um, means that there's less atrial stretch in the heart and all kinds of stuff, you know, and the fact that women have got two X chromosomes, men have only got one X chromosome, we've got one Y chromosome. A lot of the uh, um, immune system information is carried on the X chromosome. Does that mean they've got better, um, you know, better immune systems than men? Well, yes, they certainly do have better immune systems than men. Um, and, or does it, is it men seem to lack a central governor? You know, and we think about this in horses where racehorses, some racehorses can actually race themselves to death. You know, and that's, that was given this, this title of being the central governor. Is there something about men that we, you know, that we lack the, you know, somehow the capacity or the, you know, the wherewithal say, that's enough. I'm, you know, I'm cooked now and stop. Uh, you know, um, or is there some other thing about men's lifestyles that we store up information and, incrementally just layer on information on information uh, and, that, and that makes us vulnerable to these problems and and talking about the cardiologists you interviewed for the book that's a good place for me to mention that you have got these wonderful experts in there and an awful lot of them seem to be midlife cyclists too is is that is that a fluke that they are is that how you came upon them or is cycling something that they were attracted to for, for health reasons? How come you met all of these fantastic cardiologists through cycling? Well, I mean, most of them I knew before. So Nigel, I knew before. Um, and Audrius is a client who I met. So, you know, obviously I'm in a good place to meet these people, aren't I? They come in for a bike here, we get chatting. You know, I invite them to come and give a lecture at CycleFit or, you know, whatever. You know, so that, you know, CycleFit was a, was a driver there. And I would just seek them out. I mean, I, you know, if I was, they were, they were doing some research I was interested in, Ahmed Magani, I called him up and he said, well, I'm really busy. He said, well, I, you know, I'll come, I'll come over to you. So he, I interviewed him, we spoke a few times. Uh, I would just go over and sit in the, I would go over and sit in the lobby at, at um, Guy's Hospital and just sit there and in the lobby with a, 
you know, with a recorder and I would just ask him as a question between patients, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, so Audrey is semiartist. He's a, he's a cardiologist and a cyclist and, and an immoderate one. He exercises hard. Nigel Stevens is a cardiologist, very well known, again, European pursuit champion, obviously exercises immoderately. But both of those do say they exercise hard because they enjoy it, not necessarily because they think it's good for them. Well, I'll go straight. I'll go straight into in a part of chapter three, anyway, and you, you, you're basically talking about the lancification of cycling. So it's again, this is a point that maybe we, we don't raise often enough. And because of Lance's uh, doping background, which you do uh, point out elsewhere in the book, because you are a Serbic elsewhere in the book about his doping background. But here, you're just talking about how in 2000, and with you know his book, uh, it's not about the bike. That brought a whole bunch of new people into cycling new cohorts more women came in into cycling uh, partly because of lance's uh, it wasn't his tour de france success per se it was the the coming back from cancer success so let's just let's kind of park to one side the doping side of lance armstrong and just focus on you know what he actually did for 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 cycling so you presumably are positive on that side of the lancification, I, I am. I am very positive on that side. I mean, to be fair, I was actually quite positive about Lance on the other side for a long time. I thought his win in 93 in Norway in the rain, you know, was astonishing for a 21-year-old. Um, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I think he was younger that year than the junior world champion. Um, and, you know, I've, I've got clients who, you know, who were very ill with cancer and their oncologists, American oncologists, had prescribed them the bike. I mean, that's not a joke. You know, clients coming and saying, yeah, my, my, my oncologist has told me to get a bike and ride. An awful lot of people in the bike industry right now probably wouldn't be in the bike industry without that that backstory. He, he absolutely, you know, we've got the bike boom now, but we had also uh, back then, we had the Lance boom. So the road bike boom was was almost single-handedly down to Lance. That's right. That's right. And it's just not talked about, Martin, is it? I mean, and I, you know, and, and, and I almost feel like there's an amateur about it. You know, like you can't discuss this. Mm. You know, and I totally agree with that. I think that's right. I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think I would have a business without Lance. There, there I said it. You know, I, I, you know I, or I have a very different kind of business. Let's change the subject anyway uh, and get away from that because I know that's a, that's a red rag to a bull for lots of people. Many many people might have turned off by now. So let's 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 change the subject. Uh, and that is H- H- no 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 HRV. So that's heart rate variability. So you mentioned that in chapter three. Is a big big splurge on it in chapter three. And then you come back to it uh, even further into the book, in, in which you basically say you know of all the the FTPs, all the all the, the, the you know the TLAs, the three letter uh, acronyms in the book. This is perhaps one of the uh, the most important for, and we've got to stress for an athlete, like a midlife athlete, so somebody who's trying to either get good or stay good on a bike. So, so describe to 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 me as a, as a layman, and you're a layman, but describe heart rate variability and and why uh, it, it's now considered to be that's that's the, the the kind of the gold standard. Okay, well, heart rate variability (HRV) is um, just a measurement the difference in spacing between your heartbeats that's what it is simply and you know we often think our heart 
is racing at you know 60, 70 beats per minute or 130 beats per minute, and the spaces between those beats will be equidistant. They're not in fact. Uh, they're anything but equidistant. Um, and, that, and the difference in spacing carries a lot of information. And midlife cycles can use that information to uh, improve their performance and their overall health and well-being. And the context of this book is, is I desperately want midlife athletes to look after themselves better, to be healthier, to be more productive, to achieve the goals that they've set for themselves on the bike, whether that's to ride in a tractor tour or a European Pursuit Championship. The role of this book is to say, okay, if you're going to do these things, look after yourself. You know, that, and that really is, despite the, as you say, the irreverent humour in the book, and there is some irreverent humour in the book, you know, overall, I hope the message of the book comes across is that I want people to look after themselves. And the reason I come back to HRV in the um, Mindful Cyclist chapter at the end uh, was I want to find a way to try and help people look after themselves better. And heart rate variability is a way they can do that. And one of my friends, very good friends, who's in the book a few times, Dr. Justin Mandeville, who is a intensive care consultant, is, you know, was, 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 he and I chatted about this a few times. H, they use HRV. HRV is something which they chart in intensive care. They're, they chart in hospitals, uh, and it gives them predictive information. And that predictive information is something we can use. I mean, back in the day, going back 40 years or 35 years, I would get up and take my heart rate, and I would give that, and I would, in the, my waking heart rate, and that would be an indication of how rested I was or how fatigued I was. Or, and that information was, was only minimally useful because a lot of um, endurance athletes are, what, are what's called bradycardic. Our heart rates just fall through the floor. So, you know, often a lot of us have got heart rates of in the 30s and early 40s. So, you know, taking our heart rate, even if we've got a virus or not very well in the morning, isn't exceptionally useful. However, HRV is a much more honest and nuanced metric. It will tell you how fatigued you are, how rested you are, how ready you are to go out and punish your body with a hard training session. And, and I think that's true for all athletes, but it's, it's especially true for midlife athletes because we're intrinsically swimming upstream. We're swimming against the tide of nature. And so you know, we need to know this important information um, and have the presence of mind and character to say, HRV is not looking great. I, you know what? I, I shouldn't train today. I should do a gentle yoga class, eat properly, um, you know, hydrate, rest, and then train tomorrow. You know, that, that's eminently sensible. So what, 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 that was in chapter three and, and it was elsewhere. But then, because we're going on, on TLAs, let's go to the next one, and because you've got an interesting uh, bit of research there, and that is um, functional threshold power. So FTP, a lot of people uh, who are into their, you know, performance sport will will know FTP. But what in, in the book, and you, you, you're backing this up with with research, is the, the bizarre sounding um, anecdote, or not anecdote, finding, I should say, sorry, that uh, your hardcore amateurs are probably redlining, are probably g- going through that compared to pros. And people think, oh, obviously, pros will be you know, absolutely at the limit there. And they're not. So, so what's happening there and what can people do about it? Yeah, I mean, you're picking out all the uh, high points there, aren't you? The FTP, or Functional Threshold Protocol, um, is, is a number which has gained in popularity. Uh, and it's now become the holy metric, if you like. 
Uh, and the point about this is not to say that FTP doesn't have any use or you shouldn't use it or you shouldn't reference it. But my point is you shouldn't, it shouldn't be the only thing that you reference. Because, let's be honest, at some point, your FTP will plateau. You know, you're not a robot. You know, you know, so you can't keep expecting to ratchet up your FTP. You know, it's not a one-way street, this. It's either going to hit a plateau and at some point it's likely to go down. So, you know, if you make if you if you make all of your cycling enjoyment contingent upon that number, I, I think you're you know you're in for disappointment. So there's a, I'm saying there's a broader basket of things that you can look at to reference your performance enjoyment. That's really what I'm saying. Um, but, so the problem with FTP is that one is it doesn't actually it doesn't reference any physiological markers in our blood markers. But it doesn't you know, it's it's a difficult one to actually track accurately. And it's impossible to track accurately on your own because you're not actually taking blood. So, you know, all you're doing really is going on with your own perception. So what, what the coaches that I interviewed found, um, and there's three or four in the book, is that most people, you know, overstate their FTP. And that then, if they then use that as a predator for their training levels through the year, they end up overtraining. They end up going too hard most of the time. And the, as you say, the, the this is all just data. And if you compare that to professional cyclists, they spend proportionally less of their time anywhere near the red line than we do. So their bodies are on tick over and we're racing away like a hummingbird. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of tells you all you need to know. You know, these guys race for a living. And yet they're, they're nowhere near their red line. We don't do it for a living and we're twice their age and we're bouncing off the red limit. So what, what, what can people do? What, what do you suggest? Just, is that basically just don't overtrain? Is that, is that the, 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 the get, giveaway there? It, use different structure. Use different, yeah, it, it's, it's about saying look at your training and look at your riding um, uh, and review it. Um, and, you know, if you actually go back to, all through our mine and Jules' career at CycleFit and also in writing this book, we always go back to first principles. You know, what were we designed to do? You know, so essentially humans are extremely good at endurance. We're not very fast. There's no, there's no other animal in the world that we can outrun. We can't even outrun a badger. You know, we're not great. <laughs> do you know what I mean? We can't. There's no, there's no mammal in this country you, you, know, you can outrun. I mean, or me. You know, we're, just, we're not fast. What we've got is endurance. You know, we're great endurance animals. We were we were born and evolved to persistent hunt. So you know, so those endurance, those are the those that if we're going to go with our evolution, it's um, tuning our endurance um, genes, if you like. And 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 all of the coaches I interview would say the same thing. It's like, well, let's you know, what you really want to do. Not only as a midlife cyclist, but certainly more as a midlife cyclist, is train that oxidative system, aerobic system. Those are the ones you want. You actually want to make that the most efficient uh, machine you can make it before you even think about, um, you know, um, looking at pure high-end performance. And I think that's absolutely right. So I, I, what happens too often time with my clients is that, and, and I've got. You know, there's not much I can say about it because they're not there. To, I'm not their coach, but they come into the sport, absolutely love it, get completely addicted, hook onto this FTP number, and they just want to elevate, elevate the FT number. It's like guys, well, not necessarily all guys, it's guys and girls, but 
you know, hold on a second. Uh, you know, you're ignoring a whole background there of aerobic capacity training you should be doing. You know, that's the bit you're bypassing because all the time you're on the red line, you're not working that system. Um, and the coach's data backs it up. You know, they're looking, if they compare their amateur clients with their professional clients, their professional clients are more rested, more rested, having an easier time of it, you know, less near the red line, less overtrained, less tired, less fatigued than us. Mm. So there, there are some great training myths that you, you do bust in the book. And I'd like to focus on, on, on one here and, and, well, it's kind of, it's like almost two in one, but anyway, and that's like the, 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 the pedaling in circles and the, the suplice, the, the way that you're meant to, or it was at one point, um, 20 years ago, and it, it, it's still absolutely lingering. And you call it the, the cycling's flat earth movement. And that is the upstroke. So are you saying forget the upstroke? Upstroke is just a complete non-starter because of the, if I'm right in saying, the hip flexor. I, I would start with that presumption, yes. There are times when you will pull up, like when you're pulling away from a traffic light as fast as you can or, you know, the start line of a mountain bike race, you will pull up the first few pedal strokes, yeah? And top of a climb, standing up, you know, just, just about to crest the top of a climb, you may also pull up a bit there. All that's fine. I'm not saying you never pull up. What I'm saying is that when you're pedaling at tempo, um, on a climb or on the flat, and you're at your kind of, you know, the, you know, your sustainable power, if you like, you're really working quite hard. There, there is no pull up there. Pedaling is a non circular event because going back to first principles, Carlton, you evolved to be powerful in extension. Think about running. You've only got power in running with ground contact, and ground contact means that you're going to be using your um, your extensor muscles, your glutes, your quads. And your calves; those are your primary extensor muscles, because those are the muscles that become active when you've got ground contact. Maybe a little bit of hamstring as you kind of push away from the ground, but that's it. Once you're free of the ground, that's when your flexors come in to move the lever system back, so you can take the next stride. So you've evolved to have power with ground contact, which means your extensor muscles. That's how. That's just human evolution. Uh, and if you if you ride a bike at tempo and actually just try and switch off the push down and just pull up, you'll you know in about forty yards you'll realise that's not good. That doesn't feel right to me. You're trying to use quite lean, quite weak muscles uh, that didn't evolve to fulfil that role. Um, and the one that you named the hip flexor group of muscles is 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 primary amongst those. The hip flexors are essentially hip flexors and trunk stabilizers um, and you know they've only ever evolved to lift the weight of your leg forward so you can then take the next stride and that's an example of you know us being harnessed to a victorian contraption leading us leading us into bad habits and it's a victorian contraption that as you say in the book is quite constrained and the motion on the pedaling it's not circles as you say there, it's, just, it's basically, I think one of the ways where you describe Armstrong's pedaling technique is basically mashing on the pedal. So just hammering up and down, forget the circles. Yes. Now I'm, I'm not, uh, Phil, I'm in absolutely no way, shape or form an athlete. 
Um, I have done races in in the past, but I tend to do uh, uh, 24-hour solo events just because I I can then get into the top 20 then because people just drop out. (laughs) But anyway, um, uh, but I do remember friends who are athletes and and, and when they're trying to get me to to train, which I never used to do do at all, but they would would give me exercise and they would say, you should do this. And one of the ones I remember, and this is when when I was reading the book, I was thinking, hang on, I, I was told to do this at one point. Which is, uh, I know you're quite down on indoor cycling, but anyway, it's, it's an indoor cycling technique where you're meant to actually use one leg and pull up. You're actually meant to be training your pull up muscles. And I'm sure a lot of people are probably still doing that. But you're saying basically, for God's sake, don't do that. It's giving you no benefit whatsoever. In effect, it's actually probably harming you. I think if, I think you should definitely do one-legged pedal drills if you intend to go and do one-legged pedal races. If, if that's what you intend to do, then that's perfectly reasonable training. Um, I, I could win them. I could win them. <laughs> Other than that, it's, it, it, I agree with you. It's it's it's, it's essentially um, not very helpful and possibly could really hurt you because the hip flexors are quite a delicate muscle group and they, they pass through the hip. There's not a lot of space there. It's definitely not a muscle you want to overdevelop. Uh, and if you look at the architecture, the ar- ar- architecture of that part of our body, it is very, very constrained. A uh, hip flexor is not a muscle you want to mess with. Actually. So mash, mash, don't try and do circles. Okay. No, that's, 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 if we don't take anything else from the book, if there's only one thing we take away, and in fact, I've, 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 pretty, I've actually picked out lots of things I've taken away from the book. But anyway, if there was only one, then that's a pretty good one to take yep. away. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Another one, which uh, is basically unclipping, and you call that peddling uh, paracetamol. And that's for people who come to you with all sorts of uh, 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 different issues. And then you do this one simple trick, you know, like this YouTube thing, one simple trick and it'll cure this. And then you find that that helps a lot of people. So just, in effect, stop being constrained. Is that is that what you're saying with, with peddling paracetamol? Yes. The, the bicycle, the humble bicycle, Victorian architecture, as you said before, is quite, quite constraining. Um, and if you can remove one constraint, um, then you can give somebody a, sort of a, a different sort of feedback from the bicycle. So one of the things we do, if someone comes in, they're injured or they've got a problem, um, a hip problem, knee problem, foot problem. One of the things we'll do, if we look at the pedal scan and we see that the pedal scan is very dysfunctional, one of the things we'll do is take off the clipping pedals, put some flat pedals on, put them in their trainers and say, sit back on the bike now um, and, and pedal in your trainers on the flat pedals. <clears throat> and more often than not, probably 90% of the time, you just get this kind of transformation in both their pedaling activity, motor patterning, but also in their own, in their emotional mood. Like they suddenly feel uh, relaxed and they feel efficient and they feel powerful and they feel productive. And, and all you've done is you've unclipped them, frankly, and stopped them being able to pull back and pull up. Um, and they, can, they just feel again. They can just start to feel the pedals again. I and mean, it happens all the time. And it generally happens with clients who've been injured, uh, not always, by the way, but clients who've been injured and we're, and we're trying to rehab them. And it happened the other day. It happened the last week, uh, last Monday, I had a client, an ex-pro cyclist, um, and he's now been sent away with, you know, a couple of months of three times a week. He has to pedal for at least 45 minutes either indoor on flat pedals or on his mountain bike with flat pedals. And he's going to do it. So, Phil, the, ob- the obvious question is, well, why don't we just unclip all the time? Well, 
That's a really good question. Because that isn't that isn't why we have tip-in pedals. We have tip-in pedals because they can provide a lot of efficiency, having a stiff carbon sole which disperses the the pressure across the whole sole of the foot. The tip-in pedal holds your foot in the right position relative to the pedal spindle for maximum efficiency and power. And also because you want to move around a bike, and if you're moving around a bike, you need to have your foot kind of clipped in. You know, it's very hard to descend fast or mm. jump out the saddle and attack or get out the saddle and pedal in, in up a climb if you're not clipped in. There's plenty of reasons to be clipped in, but you don't clip in to pull up. You clip in for foot stability. Mm. Okay, takeaways from the book. Okay, so I've, just, I've got a little box out here, Phil, and we can go through them. Um, and if I just, if I, I, I just say what it is, and then you give me a, 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 a quick why. Why you? Why I've picked this out from the book? Why I think what I think it's important, but you tell me um, why you put it in the book. So don't drink booze. Oh God! Um, because because ethanol, alcohol, ethanol is an obligate toxin. It's a poison. The body, yeah, the body treats it as poison and is obliged to metabolize it first. So it, it recognizes it as a toxin and and gets very uh, excited about it and wants to get it out of your body quickly. If you're trying to train the next day after a, a lot too many drinks, your body is still frantically trying to metabolize the alcohol and won't metabolize the, the very healthy breakfast you had until it's got rid of all the alcohol. Ethanol is not recognized as a body as fuel. Mm. It's recognized as poison. Mm. And, and, I, and I'm not – sorry, I, I should say that I've got no – you know, I was a very, very – I used to drink a lot of red wine uh and still would you know i i'm somebody i'm a sinner i'm not somebody who you know <laughs> is abstemious by nature well you are you uh, actually you have actually made wine recommendations in the book <laughs> there's a couple of points where you talk about italy you think oh well, you know this particular vineyard you go here so yes you have you, yes. you, you, you're not totally you're not a teetotaler from 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 day one you you do make <laughs> wine recommendations but that's a good point okay so that's don't drink brews but do drink cherry wine why would you uh, not cherry cherry juice why would you drink cherry juice but that's been shown to have some quite um have some both effects in terms of sleep and recovery. Um, so cherry juice is, is, has been shown to be quite beneficial. Um, that that, um, that was it's been out for a few years. That research. I mean, so certainly cherry juice seems to be a bit like. Remember, everyone was taking. Um, uh, oh, what they? It was um, a few years ago. Everyone was um, Beet, beetroot. Beetroot juice, weren't they? Same thing. We, mm. you know, you know, there are there are certain there are certain chemicals in the in beetroot and in cherry cherry juice that do seem to have some beneficial effects yeah um, and that's and also so, good for sleep isn't it you, you say it's, yeah. it's melatonin at night and stuff yeah so it, it, it stimulates the pineal gland which 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 secretes uh, melatonin which helps you sleep yeah. mm, okay now you're a big fan in the book of cross training so you do say you know don't it's not yes it's about the bike but don't be on the bike all the time uh, one thing, and this is absolutely something I do all the time anyway, and that it, so you talk about walking over uneven surfaces, uh, and that's for bone density. So, you know, don't take just your dog on, on the canal towpath, you know, go into the woods a bit and, and, and get a bit of um, off-roading in. But then you also uh, mention what, something I don't do, but maybe I should, and that's paddleboarding. So it seems you're, you're kind of like a big convert into paddleboarding. Yes, I'm, I'm into anything. Yes, I think the, the older you get, it's almost like the less cycling you need to do to be faster at cycling. If you want to be fast at cycling, 
the older you get, the more you're going to have to drop out cycling and put in something else. You're, photo, you're fighting bone density, sarcopenia, which is muscle loss. Um, so, and you, you're, so you need to exchange your cycling sessions with something else. What do you, what do you exchange them for? So chaotic walking, as, as Graham Anderson describes it, great friend of mine, physiotherapist, chaotic walking is just a way, if you can't run for one reason or another, then chaotic walking is a really good idea. So walking, probably walking poles on rough ground where every step is different, good for bone density, good for balance, good for strength. Paddleboarding is great for cyclists because it works on several things we're really bad at. Balance, mm-hmm. upper body strength, lower trap mm-hmm. strength, um, and also it keeps us in extension. So we're not flexed, like we're in an office chair, we're in extension. So paddleboarding is, you know, is really, really very good for cyclists. It's almost the perfect antidote for cycling. You want to drop out one session and put in something mm-hmm. else, something like paddleboarding or walking with poles or something like that. Okay. Uh, next, uh, you, you, you're kind of pretty dismissive on most supplements, but then you do say vitamin D. Yes, vitamin D is a hormone. It's not a vitamin. Um, so it provokes the body to do something. Um, and vitamin D, I think, is uh, without, you know, without proselytizing and saying everyone should run out and buy vitamin D, it, it does seem to have a role in, in provoking middle-aged athletes to, you know, to increase their bone density, seems to have some function with their immune system. Uh, we live in the Northern Hemisphere. We don't seem to be getting the, the same sunshine that we used to. You know, it seems to make sense vitamin D as long as you don't overdo it. I'm not a big mm. fan of supplements, but that one seems to be, that one seems to be pretty much universally accepted, I think, vitamin D as you get older and you're still trying to hang on to performance. And that, that and maybe cod liver oil, you kind of, you say you'd take that as a supplement too. Yeah, cod liver oil. Yes, cod liver oil, um, obviously it's, it, it, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's good because it balances, you know, your lipids and your blood, um, you know, it's HDL, but also um, it, um, it's also anti-inflammatory, of course, fish oil. But it actually has an anti-inflammatory role. Um, so, you know, given cycling, essentially high-level cycling is inflammatory, then, um, you know, taking fish oil will actually be a mild anti-inflammatory. Mm. And then a big, I've actually put this in caps, uh, a big takeout from the from the book, which you mentioned a couple of times, or oh, a few times, and that is sleep. Oh, yes. Now, this is a big one. I mean, I, I probably didn't go into this enough, and I wish I had, uh, but I think the role of sleep is underestimated. It's underestimated with older people, older athletes. We just underestimate it. We just try and burn the candle at both ends and then, you know, make a sandwich out of the rest of it. It's just like, you know, we're doing too much. And sleep seems to have, sleep's role every year, the studies and the research seems to suggest sleep's role is more and more crucial. And I think midlife people, you know, balancing profession, family, exercise, responsibilities, you know, the first thing that we can get rid of is sleep, so we do. You know, it's that extra hour each end we need, you know, so we get up earlier and go to bed, you know, so we sacrifice it willingly to try and uh, try and tick off the rest of our, rest of our responsibilities, but it seems to be dangerous. Uh, Zwifters have now got a, a, a turn away here now, a turn off now, because you're not really a big fan of indoor cycling, are you? No, I, I think I think I'm. I think that's fair to say, Carlton. Yeah, I can't deny that. So why? Why? I mean, you, you mentioned in the book, but tell us now why you're not a big fan of indoor cycling. I'm not a fan of it because. Um, I, 
I, there's a the risk, I think, of people going too hard in a poor position uh, in poorly ventilated rooms um, with not enough hydration. It just there's, there's some alarm bells for it for me because an indoor cycling generally, and this is an assumption, and I, and I, and I might be wrong about this, but generally speaking, these days indoor cycling seems to be about going very very hard and very very fast pain, pain cave stuff isn't it so the, even the the the, the name cave. is saying you know we're going to hurt ourselves yeah yeah, yeah. And, and i to me that's something best out, done outside where the topography and the road and the terrain can limit your efforts you know you go up a hill then you're going to go down a hill you know there's a there's sort of natural kind of flattening effect if you like mm. and you're also outside so there's fresher air and you're less likely to overheat and you know, all these things. And there's something about the way people ride indoors, you know, when they're really riding hard, they forget their form on the bike. They forget their posture and their muscle recruitment and their motor patterning. And they seem to kind of fight the bike, which itself is completely stationary and mobile. So it's not moving with you. And that's what we forget when we ride a bike out on the trail. Mm. You know, the bike moves with you. It's like a dance, isn't it? It's moving and you're moving. You're moving together. That doesn't happen. You move, it doesn't. And guess which one's going to get sore. So there's a nice quote in there from from Dr. David Hulse. It's on page 269 for anybody who's reading along with this podcast. And that is uh, cycling uh, mile upon mile in scenery. I thought that encapsulated a lot. It's like you can actually go a lot further than you think when you've got nice things to look at. Where did he say that? I'm going to look at that. What page is that? Page two hundred and sixty-nine. Oh, right. So it, it's in one of the it's in one one of the final bits oh, where yes. the, the yes. and I just thought that was excellent because that that yeah because my my son's just done a, a video of of Scotland his his trip in Scotland recently and it's just the the scenery was wonderful and you're just looking at it and it's probably the, one of the reasons that video did quite well is because a he's done some great f- drone photography of him and his girlfriend cycling. The weather was beautiful. So you could see for miles and miles, you could see the road snaking away and you could just think, yeah, I could do 60 miles through that kind of stuff pretty easily yeah. because it looks so beautiful. So get out there and ride. That's actually the way we end the podcast. Uh, but that that is actually something that is it, it, quite important that that part of cycling, you lose that. You, no amount of computer-generated graphic can can bring that that part of cycling into reality. I agree with you. And Dave Holt writes beautifully. I've just read that. Yeah, David writes beautifully. Um, so yeah, it, towards the end of the the, the book, uh, you talk about how your next book uh, in twenty years' time, when you're eighty odd, is going to be called The Twilight Cyclist. So I absolutely look forward to. To, to reading that when I get to that age too, uh, Phil. And then I'm sure we'll have another podcast, even though I'm sure it won't be called that. It'll be called something weird and wonderful uh, in the future where we'll, we'll talk about that book. But let's come back to the present and the Bloomsbury book, uh, Bloomsbury Sport, $14.99. It's got $20 on the, the, the back here. How can people get hold of the book, Phil? How can they get hold of you? What are your social media handles? And give us your uh, website so people can go to your corporate side. Yes, so www.cyclefit.co.uk, um, and you can buy the book off our website. Um, I've got, you can follow me on Twitter if you want. My, I'm trying to put my Twitter 
I think it's just at Phil Cavell, I think. Anyway, you can search me on Patreon. Thanks to Phil Cavell there. And thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the-spokesman.com. I know I've already said the usual show sign-off. But as you've heard from Phil and Dr. Hulse, it bears repeating. So get out there and ride. And there, of course, is um, outside.